0: so we've been in this series devoted and it's uh for those of you who who don't know there's a few of you out there who may be joining us new today we've been going through acts 242 uh where it says that the the early church the first church anointed by the holy spirit continually devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to prayer to the breaking of the bread into fellowship and so I was going to move on to uh, double down on what we talked about last week, which was uh, which was fellowship, and um, and but the the as you guys prayed for me and as I engaged with the Lord more and more, even late in this week, I felt like God pulling me um, away from double downing on last week as much as I had hoped to. And really wanted me to focus on this issue of fear. Um, it, it really wasn't my plan as much as as um, as much as I, I intellectually know that fear is a real thing. Um, I, I wasn't burdened by it uh, personally this week. But as I asked for prayer from you all, and as I engaged with the Lord, and I, I just tell even my wife. It, it just really seemed like God was um, not just an intellectual thing, but just putting on my heart to say, I need to bring this this message this week. So it's it's a little bit of moving away from our current series. Um, and I think obviously everybody understands circumstantially why God might do that. Um, so I am going to uh, to kind of go at fear from a little bit of a different angle. I'm gonna try to kind of uh, come around it from uh, the very bottom of, of, of fear. And it, hopefully that'll kind of what I'm trying to say will make clear as I talk. Um, but I have a few points to say this morning, and and I'm going to just go through each point. And then by the end, I hope you'll see how, how this all fits together and how this is bringing um, fear uh, under God's sovereignty. Really, this message is essentially about God's sovereignty. It's about his control over all things. And the first point I want to make this morning relative to coronavirus or unemployment or anything um, the past present the future is is something that is gonna maybe hit you hard It, it might strike you as um a little tough maybe as we start to really think about its implications but but please stay with me and try to listen to um not just one verse or two passages but as we keep go through several different passages try to let those things um minister to what you're gonna hear right now the first point i want to make and i I, am a little i i'm i'm fearful even now i'm getting kind of fearful to even bring this to you but the first point i want to make drum roll is that god ordains all things god ordains all things this is a very straight and to the point proclamation from God's word again and again and again and I'm going to go to one of the rawest hardest hitting passages about this in the scriptures and it comes from Isaiah 45. I'm going to read Isaiah 45 uh, 5 through 7 to you and then I want to bring additional truths around it so it's not going to be misunderstood but but let me say a couple of things ahead of time to brace some of you for this passage. Before I read it, I want to say unequivocally, this passage is not teaching that God is not completely good. He is completely good. It's not teaching that God does not care about you. He is deeply concerned for you, and he cares about you more than any person on the earth. We'll talk more about that later, but I wanted to lay that out there at the front, because like I said, we're going to go to a potentially very touchy place. So let me give you a little background on this passage. In Isaiah 45, the Lord is talking to to this guy named Cyrus, okay? Cyrus isn't born yet. He's going to be born in like 100 plus years time. Cyrus is is a foreign conqueror that God is going to raise up to free his people Israel from an exile. An exile that has not even happened yet. So in this passage, God is speaking to a guy named Cyrus, who's not yet born, about how he's going to raise up Cyrus to be this mighty conqueror of the world. And he's going to free, Cyrus is going to be used by God to free Israel from an exile that God is going to put them into for their sin that they've not even been in yet. Okay, so then God kind of exalts in himself, in his glory. And here's what he says. This is Isaiah 5 through 7. Listen to these words from God. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, that's speaking to Cyrus. I equip you, though you do not know me, so that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. And I particularly want to want to hit this last part. Listen to it again. There is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Folks, this is the word of God and, and we need not apologize for it. We need to submit ourselves to it and ask for humility and grace to understand it. God is proclaiming something astonishing, something mysterious, maybe the hardest thing to understand in all of history. From our human point of view, he is saying not only does he bring well-being and peace and prosperity, but he says he brings, and even in this text, creates calamity. Not only does God bring miracles of healing, not only does God bring vaccines for polio, but he ordains blindness and malaria. Don't hang up on the video link at this point there is much more to this but there's not less but listen to his words again i make well-being and create calamity i am the lord who does all these things and remember the larger context god is god is talking to a guy who's not born who's going to take over the world and free his people from exile when they're not been exiled that god's going to bring them into so <clears throat> the whole context is listen I am overseeing everything. I am in control of everything. And he's not apologizing for it. Now let's start to qualify this and unpack this a little bit deeper. We know that this world is fallen, right? Everybody knows this world is full of brokenness. It is full of disease. It is full of natural disaster. It is full of mental illness and physical illness. But but have you ever asked the question, how did it get to be fallen? I don't mean sin, right? Because that's our our knee-jerk response is sin has led the world into a fallen place. And yes, sin entered the world, but why did sin of of, of one man affect the fall of the entire creation? Or or rather maybe a better question for today's message is how did that happen? In Romans eight, 19 through 21, the Apostle Paul is speaking of the, the futility, the fallenness, the brokenness of this world. He's talking about this word groaning, that all creation, he says, groans. It's, it's waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. It's waiting for the resurrection from the dead, when death and disease and destruction will be no more. He says in Romans eight nineteen, Paul says, creation waits, all creation waits with eager longing. For the revelation of the sons of God. And that term sons of god it means men and women it's a generic it's waiting for god to raise up from the dead humanity free from the shackles of this fallen world in the resurrection of the dead and then he says something right after that might breeze by us very quickly he says for the creation Meaning this world, this fallen world he's talking about, it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, that was a lot, but but did you see that thing in the beginning? (laughs) He says, he says, Hold on, my my screen's gone bad here for a second. I got to bring this back up. Listen to what he says at the very beginning of verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free. So who's the him who subjects creation to futility in hope that it would be set free? It's God. You know, the devil didn't subject creation to futility in hope that it might ultimately be free of sin and death. Adam didn't subject creation into futility in the hope that it would be free from sin and death. The only person who that could be is God. God who, after after seeing Adam's sin and what it was doing to contaminate the whole human race, he subjected everything in creation to this thing we call the second law of thermodynamics, the law of death, the law of breakdown, the law of entropy, that, so that one day he could restore a creation to its full, eternal, redemptive glory. And, and why he did that, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but, but God did not want to leave man in his sinful condition. And, and so in subjecting creation into futility, God's purpose is that man might cry out in the midst of that futility, not be satisfied in that futility, but recognize the futility that comes from God through man's rejection of God and cry out to God and be restored. But, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on it except just to make the point that the source, the cause of our fallenness is God's doing. Maybe in less difficult words, the scripture teaches the same truth in in other places. Daniel 4.35, speaking of God, he does according to his will. He does everything according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Ephesians 1 through 11. Paul says, according to the plan of him, that's God. Who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap. The, the Proverbs writer is talking about dice, literally. <laughs> He's saying, dice are, are rolled across the deck, but it's every decision, even the dice, it's every decision is from the Lord. Matthew 10:29. Are not two sparrows sold for one penny and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. by the way, I'm going to send out all the verses to this passage today to everybody uh, in email and I'll and if and I if, uh, just make sure that I have your email today if you want these verses you put it on the scroll chat and I'll, and I'll look it up but coming back to, to, to Matthew 29 Jesus is saying, you know when you drive on the highway, And you drive by a deer that's been hit that didn't happen apart from god's will is what jesus is saying in in psalm 139 david says this in your book that's god's book were written the days all the days that were ordained for me in god's book were written all the days that were ordained set out planned for me when as yet there was not one of them not one of your days is outside of god's control outside of his sovereignty outside of his will not j- not just days with unemployment but every day every day is in god's control so this brings up a, a, a tough question here of course because our days include sin right our days include us sinning our days include other people sinning against us so, if God's in control of all that, does that mean that God sins? Does it mean that He does evil? Well, you know, kind of a spoiler a spoiler alert here. No, it doesn't mean that. The, the scriptures speak again and again the same scriptures and many of the same books, even some of the same chapters that declare God's sovereignty over all things, declare His perfect righteousness, His justice, His fairness, His love and His mercy. Psalm 145 says that the Lord is good to all and merciful towards all his way merciful towards all he has made he is righteous in all of his ways James 1 says let no one say when he's tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust James is saying God does not sin God does not make you sin and he doesn't like sin and he himself doesn't sin so so how how do we like put these two things together this idea that God is sovereign over all things and in his sovereignty he allows sin to happen yet is not ultimately we can't say uh, sinful well I want to introduce something that's sometimes called theologically uh, an instrumental cause it's called instrumental causes so if god is the ultimate cause of all things we might say the ultimate source of all things there's this important category called instrumental cause and by the way this isn't like this isn't science classroom you know super academic i'm not gonna do a ton of um you know, hyper-academic work here, but, but I, I think it's really important that you just try to stick with me through this right here, and we'll, we'll come out on the other side, and, and get to some things that will hopefully, by God's grace, encourage and strengthen you. But, but when you think of that word, instrumental cause, I want you to think of the idea of instrument, it's right there. Instrumental cause, instrument. So we might say, just for argument's sake, that Jared was the ultimate cause of worship this morning. But that his guitar was the instrumental cause okay a doctor might give you a flu shot and after the flu shot you've got this sore arm it's red and sore right there the doctor is the ultimate cause of your sore arm but he used a needle and that's the instrumental cause so now let's go back to god with this right let's say the instrumental causes were not only inanimate objects like needles and guitars, and and not only natural things like rain and sun, but let's say these instrumental causes also included people, saved people who love God and lost people who don't know God and don't care about him. Let's say that these instrumental causes include angels, faithful angels who love God and fallen angels who hate God. We'd call them demons. So now we're including in this category of instrumental causes, spiritual beings like us and celestial beings like angels who have their own choices, their own wills, and who are responsible for their own choices and their own wills. And as we add that to the equation of instrumental causes in God's toolbox, so to speak, we're we're, we're now more and more looking at the universe as it is. And listen, as an aside here, we're never going to understand this fully and and theologians and preachers and pastors and writers who try to say, I can explain this perfectly, they usually veer off into one extreme or the other. Either they say that God isn't all powerful functionally and he can't stop what he's trying to stop, or they end up saying that God actually functionally is responsible for evil in such a way that he is evil himself and and the difference is is negligible. So. So I, I want to just admit at the start, there are aspects of mystery here we, we can't solve. But what the Bible clearly teaches is that God, who is always good and always just, uses instrumental causes that are fallen. Inanimate ones like viruses. and Or, or rather, non-volitional ones like viruses. And he also uses beings like us and like angels that have moral abilities that have moral choice responsibilities and and he does this to work out his ultimate causes his ultimate purposes his ultimate plan and of course like i said there's great mystery god does not love wickedness god grieves over injustice but he uses wickedness to accomplish good things he grieves over injustice but he uses it to accomplish ultimately good things god is affected and afflicted The Bible says he's afflicted in our afflictions. He hurts when we're hurt. And yet he uses hurts to accomplish his purposes. The Bible says that God longs to have compassion on hurting people. And he's close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. But God, in the mystery of his sovereignty, has ordained that spirits would be crushed and hearts would be broken god says i hate sin in the core of my being and yet he allows sin god says he hates death and destruction and disease and depression but in his hidden wisdom and sovereignty he has decreed to use all things including bad things to accomplish his just and good purposes and, and he, he isn't just standing back saying, okay, I'll let this happen. I didn't know this was going to happen, but now that it's happening, I'll let it happen. No, God knows what he's doing from the beginning of eternity. He had a plan. The plan is unfolding as he has designed it to unfold. And it includes things that he has ordained from the beginning of time would be allowed to happen. It doesn't mean he likes them, but he knew when he planned that these things would happen. And he ordained that they would. He has allowed them to happen as he ordered them. We get little hints of what this looks like between heaven and earth in scripture. Sometimes you might remember Job, the book of Job and in the beginning of Job, you have this picture of God almost picking a fight with Satan. God says, and this is sort of a poetic form here, I believe he says, have you seen my servant Job? No one is more righteous than all the earth. And in response, Satan purposes to show God that Job is just a fair-weather friend. He basically says to God, he's in it for the money. He doesn't really love you. If if you let me mess with him, he's going to curse you to your face. And so God, who knows the end from the beginning, he allows Job to be tested. God, the ultimate cause, allows Satan to become an instrumental cause. Who surrounds Job with destruction and disease and death. And Job, through the book, is stricken. He's not destroyed, but he is hit as hard as any of us could imagine being hit. And he refuses to curse God. He is sanctified, he has grown through this. And we're led on in, in what is happening in heaven. The readers, we can see through our study of the book, what's happening up there. But Job is never let in on what's up, going on upstairs between God and Satan. But do you know what, what Job does in the book? He, he assigns all the responsibility for what has happened to him to God. He asks this famous question, shall we take the good from the Lord and not the bad? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at the end of the book, God has compassion on Job functionally. Like he he, he acts, he enters in and acts. He speaks to Job, he humbles Job. He, He ends Satan's work, he puts a stop to it, and he gives Job more than all he had at the beginning of the book. And then at the very end, the book says about his friends, it says, they comforted and consoled Job listen to this, over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. The author knows that Satan was an instrumental cause. Job doesn't know that. The author does. But regardless, all the ultimate assignment for the trouble that came upon Job is placed on God. God meant what we might say what is said about Joseph. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for Job's ultimate good. We see this again in the story of Joseph in Egypt. Joseph's brothers almost murder him. Then they decide to throw him in a well and and sell him to slave traders. And Joseph goes through this terrible trial from prison to eventually over the years running all of Egypt. And when finally, at the end of the book, his brothers come back to him because they need him and they repent to him, Joseph says this incredible thing to them. He's trying to comfort them because they feel super guilty. They're super worried about what, Job, what, what what Joseph, who's now basically in command of all of Egypt under Pharaoh, might do to them. And, and so basically Joseph is running to comfort them and he comforts them with this really curious truth. He says, as for you, What you intended against me for evil, God intended for good in order to accomplish a day like this, to preserve the lives of many. Now, don't don't go too quick past that. Joseph doesn't say, what you intended against me for evil, God noticed somehow suddenly in the middle of it. And so he decided to turn it around and use it for good. No, he doesn't say that. He says, what you intended against me for evil, God intended for good. And we even learn what, what was the good God intended in order to accomplish a day like this, when you all are saved from the famine. And he says to preserve the lives of many people, not just Joseph's brothers, but, but probably thousands upon thousands of people are saved from famine because of God's plan. We don't, we don't have all the answers, but that was his purpose. And, and so Joseph says this beautiful thing. What what my wicked brothers meant for evil as instrumental causes. They were God's instrument. God meant for good as the ultimate cause. God used them to accomplish his good. God uses things that he hates to accomplish things that he loves. God uses things that he hates to accomplish things that he loves. And of course the greatest example of this in all of scripture, Is Jesus Christ in the book of Acts in chapter 2 Peter lays the responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ at the feet of the Jews and of course ultimately the Romans too but but God makes this clear through Peter that this was God's plan all along Peter says he was handed over by God's set plan he was handed over By God's set plan and foreknowledge. And you, by the hands of the lawless, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Later on in Acts 4, Peter will say, By God's foreknowledge and plan, he was crucified by by Pontius Pilate. What, What the Jewish leaders meant for evil, God used for ultimate good. And Jesus Christ is the greatest example of this that we have in Scripture. If you look at Isaiah 53, you will see that God foretells 700 years before it happens exactly what would happen to Jesus Christ, that He would die for the sins of the people, that He would be oppressed and beaten and crushed and smitten and pierced. And then halfway through, I think it's in verse 11, God says, but it was the Lord's will to crush Him. See, people were willing to be, it wasn't it wasn't God who was making them do this in their sin. They were willing to put Jesus to death, but God from eternity had planned that this would happen all along was in control of everything and used it to save the world. I grew up in a liturgical church and we used to quote Romans eleven thirty six often, but I, I don't think I ever really heard it the way that it should be heard. <clears throat> so, Maybe you've heard it a lot too, but, but I want you to listen to it slowly this morning. This is Romans eleven thirty six. 36 from him and through him and to him are all things from him and through him and to him are all things, all things without being a sinner without being impure, without being unrighteous. From him and through him and to him are all things, all things, even coronavirus. Is that included in the all things, even stock market crashes and the destruction of 401k plans and job losses? Is that included in the all things? We have to choose between an almighty God who ordains and is sovereign over all things or a God who can't help us in our worst trials, may not be able to help us in our worst trials. And this really brings us to this famous verse in Romans 8. And many of you know this verse, if not by heart, it's very familiar to you we know that god causes all things to work together for good we know that god causes all things to work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purposes all things coronavirus stock market crashes job losses things that grieve god's heart Things that make him angry. Things that afflict him. Things that make him cry out and wail like he does about Moab's sin. Things that make him cry as he does through his son at Lazarus's grave. God causes all these things to work together for good for those who love God. He is over it. He knew it from the beginning of time. He set in course a plan of life. He's intervened many times to guide that plan in which all of these things would take place according to his plan, according to his will. So what is he doing? <laughs> like, what is he doing? Prison camps in North Korea, cancer, coronavirus, World War I, II, the Black Plague, things that he sovereignly desired, or things that he sovereignly allowed. All these things have been allowed to happen. Things that he wanted to happen, like doctors and nurses and firefighters and miracles, and things that he's permitted to happen, like diseases and death and destruction. What is he doing? what is he after? What is he after that's worth all of this pain and all of this suffering and all of this groaning and all of this futility? Well, I want to go back to Romans 8 and I want to listen to the next verse. Let's put the first one on top of it. We know that God, this is Romans 8, Um, just to make sure I'm telling you which one it is. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. His purpose. We just ask, what's God doing? Well, He has a purpose. He wants to accomplish something. What's His purpose? Let's go on into the next verse. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, He predestined, He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son God has a purpose in your life that is his ultimate purpose in everything he's letting happen good and bad to us in creation God has a purpose and it's it's how he's going to use everything good and bad for good for this purpose what's that purpose to conform you to the image of his son Jesus Christ that's God's purpose That's God's ultimate purpose in the world, His ultimate purpose in redemption. He is seeking to conform all the world, whoever will believe on Him, to conform them to the image of the Son. What God is after through all of the horrors of this world and all of the beauty of this world, all of the blessings, all of the trials, is growing in you and in me a heart that is so glorious and so good, and so pure, and so holy, and so loving that it is worth taking you through all the trials and hardships and suffering needed in order to separate your hope from this world and plant it deeper and deeper and deeper into the soil of God. And into the soil of his faithfulness. Because he knows, God knows, this world is passing away. He knows this world is a cheap substitute for him. And he loves you too much to let you become rooted and sourced in this world. And so he uses what he hates. He uses what makes him cry. He uses what makes him angry. To accomplish in you and in me what he loves. He does this because he loves you and he doesn't want you to be satisfied on a world that's fallen and broken. God uses unemployment. God uses car accidents. God uses unfaithful spouses, even as he grieves over their unfaithfulness. God uses cancer, even as he grieves over cancer. He uses kids with heart problems. God uses church splits. God uses crooked politicians on the left and the right. God uses our own sin to teach us in all kinds of ways to depend on him and not ourselves, to trust in him and not this world, to teach us what we have such a hard time coming to grips with again and again and again every day, to teach us that he alone is eternally dependable, that he alone is eternally dependable, and that he alone is eternally satisfying. That he alone is eternally satisfying. So yes, God in his love for us is willing to bring pain to our hearts emotionally. He's willing to bring pain to our bodies physically. I'm not saying that he does it happily and gladly, but I'm saying he is willing to bring pain to our hearts emotionally to bring pain to our bodies physically to get us to let go of what hurts us spiritually. I'll say that again. Without being glad about it, God is willing to bring pain to our hearts emotionally and pain to our bodies physically to to get us to let go of what hurts us spiritually. You remember C.S. Lewis's famous quote, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf and dying world. He's willing to do this because he knows that the alternative is to leave us to this fallen, condemned world. To leave us lost to its superficial salvations. To leave us lost to its shallow satisfactions. To leave us lost ultimately to our own idolatry. Where where we become creatures who care hellishly more about what we can get out of God than caring about God himself. And of course, God uses a billion good things, right? I, I, I'm staying with the tough things, but he uses a billion good things every day to also accomplish the same purpose. He uses our fervent prayers. He uses our kind words of encouragement. He uses our deep love for one another. He uses beautiful gifts like music, and friends, and humor, and arts, and romance and rivers and mountains and paintings. He uses as James says, every good and perfect gift that comes from the father of lights to work the same purpose in us of forming us into the image of Christ. So let's not look at God as as simply this big, sad, dour, cranky dad, who's always just carrying the spoon in his hand. And that's all he does. No, he is every day bringing us gifts. Of relationships gifts of beauty gifts of laughter gifts of hope to also shape us into that image of his son it's just we're not apt to question him about any of that right we're, we're just fortunate and blessed to be able to be grateful to truly see his hand in those good things and thank him so so what are our final takeaways in all this So three things, first, do not be afraid. I know easier said than done. I don't mean it like this, don't be afraid. And I don't mean it like this, don't be afraid. I I, I mean it like this, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Fearful one, like me prone to fears, don't be afraid it's been said that the most repeated command and I've heard it from enough places. I haven't done the actual math on this myself, but I've heard it from enough credible sources that I think it's true that, that the most repeated command in the Bible, whether it's said like, do not be afraid or fear not, or don't be anxious, but that the most repeated phrase or command in the Bible is essentially this, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. What's certainly true is that it's spoken often enough in the scriptures that we can trust that God right now does not want us to be afraid, but to have hope and to have courage. One of the last times that this command, do not be afraid, occurs is in Revelation 1. The apostle John is seeing a vision of Jesus shining in all of his, and I don't think it's actually a vision, I think it's actually a visitation from the risen Christ. And John sees Jesus shining in all of his God the Son, like all of his deity glory. It's so bright. It's a sight so awesome and shocking that John is filled with fear and he falls at Jesus feet, he says, as if dead. And then this is what happens next. But Jesus, it says, but he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 1, 17 through 18. Listen to the words Jesus says to John. I am the first. In other words, I am before all things. I am before all things. I predestined all things before time com- before time began. <laughs> I am God. Before creation took place before matter came into being. I was there knowing all things powerful over all things. And then he says, I am the last. John, I will survive everything that this fallen world and sin and hell and destruction can throw at me. I am going to outlast everything. And so will everyone who is in me. I am indestructible. I am the last man standing after everything is said and done. And everyone in me is also going to be standing with me forever and ever. And then jesus says i was dead and behold now i'm alive forever and ever in other words i am not in the grave anymore i'm done with that i'm done with dying for your sins i'm alive and i am here forever and ever i'm not aloof minding my own business up there in heaven i am here with you now john alive for good i will never die ever I am interceding for you to sustain your faith. I live now to to equip you with everything you need to make it through these trials and to cross the finish line of faith into my arms so that when you cross from this realm into the next realm, you don't hear, I never knew you, but instead you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I am alive to make that happen for you by sustaining you every day, so that when you get out of this world, you enter into my joy forever. He says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Keys are symbols of authority. And with Jesus' blood, he alone has authority to lock the doors of death and shut the doors of hell forever from you. When Jesus hung on the cross with all of your sins on his body, and he cried out, For your sake, it is finished. Or in the Greek, it's an arithmetic, it's an accounting term that means it is paid in full. Your sins, past, present, future, paid in full. Jesus Christ locked the door of hell and death so that it couldn't take you and you couldn't go into it. He executed his authority to save you forever. So now he says to me and to you, my, my computer screen went down again. Sorry. I'll just pull it back up. So now he says, what is it that you need to get through this, this next day, this next hour? What, what will it call from you as a citizen, a friend, a mom, a dad, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, what, what, what's this crisis going to do to your job, to your retirement, to your loved ones, what might it take from you? What might it call from you? He says, whatever it takes from you, whatever it calls from you, I am alive here now to sustain you through it, interceding for you at God's right hand. And I think God would say what he says through Paul in Romans, same chapter, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He, listen, 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 listen. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How how will he not also freely give us all things? If God didn't spare Jesus. If he gave the most precious thing in the universe over to death for you. Is he not going to give you the patience you need, the forgiveness you need, the cleansing you need, the money you need, the car you need to do whatever he's called you to do? Now, I'm not saying that he is going to give you everything you want or everything you think you should get. But, but God has called you to a life that he has set in motion and he is going to give you everything you need to live that life. God loves you. And because he loves you, he cares about your needs. He cares about your rent. He cares about you having a job. He cares about you having food. He cares about you having clothing and shelter. He cares about you having friends. Again, I'm not saying he won't call us to seasons that are far from ideal. He has done that to his people for their good for centuries. But I am saying that if and when he does that, it is in keeping with his love for you. The love for you that says, I have numbered every hair on your head. I have numbered every hair on your head. We have to remember when Jesus says that promise, and I think it's in Matthew, he says something very sobering, but if we take it for all it's worth, it's incredible. He says to his disciples, he's talking about the persecution that's going to come upon them. He says, some of some of them, meaning the persecutors will hand you over to death. And then he says, but don't worry, not a hair on your head will be harmed. Jesus is in your life for the long game. He's not interested in the short game. Okay. He's, he's in your life for eternity. He's in your life for much longer than this vapor of a life goes through. And he will, his goal is to make sure not simply that everything goes nice and tidy in your life right now. His goal is to make sure that for eternity, you are safe in his presence, rejoicing. Listen, coronavirus could be solved tomorrow. You are going to die anyway, at some point, unless the, the Lord returns. That's his concern, is not necessarily getting a vaccine tomorrow, though. God, please let a vaccine come tomorrow. But his concern is the long game for you, the eternal state of your soul. And so he cares, though. It it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about these basic needs that we have. That's why we're called to pray every day. Give us today our daily bread. He's not up there saying, la, 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 la. He gave us those words to pray. We should pray those as children looking for food from their father who has compassion. But more important than food and clothing, God is going to give you what you need to stay with Him if you seek Him for that. And to glorify Him if you seek Him for that. He's going to do this because He loves you. And because since He crushed His only begotten Son for you, when you were still covered by your sins, how will He deny you now that you stand righteous in His Son? How will he deny you now that you stand forgiven in his son? If he did that for you when you were covered by his sin? Will he abandon you now as his forgiven son and his forgiven daughter? Who struggles to live for him as you should? Who daily struggles with sin? Who daily struggles with weaknesses? He is going to meet you. So do not be afraid. Number two, go to God with your fears. Right? I I said that... Uh, do not be afraid i said i didn't mean that like do not be afraid right and this is what i mean by that number two go to him with your fears psalm 62 8 says that our god is a tower of refuge he says pour out your hearts to him all you people for our god is a refuge pour out your hearts to him because he's a refuge bring your junk to him i've said it many 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 times i i, I often start my prayer journals with God, I I just feel so far away from you. I feel lost. I feel nothing towards you. Would you please help meet me? Satan will tell you that you've got to get it together perfectly before you can come to God. No, 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 You come to God because you don't have it together. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was, but was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet never sinned. We don't have a high priest who doesn't sympathize with us. We have one who sympathizes with our weaknesses and our proclivities and vulnerabilities to disobey him, to abandon him and to leave him. He sympathizes with that. And he says, come to me for help in that. My door is open. I shed my blood to bring you to my father so that in any time of need all day long, you can come to me for help. You gotta believe I'm that good if you're gonna keep coming to me and receive from me. You gotta believe in my good heart. If you're going to do that, if you give up on my good heart, you're not going to come. You're not going to receive. Believe in my good heart, that I'm for you, that I love you, that I sympathize with you. Jesus' blood pays for this access. Go to Him with your fears. You know, um, we have a uh, <coughs> we have a Costco. I know Nathan Weaver. If you're still here, I saw your post about going to Costco the other day. <coughs> If you're used to going to Costco, you know or any one of these stores like Sam's Club or whatever, you you take your cart and you go to that person, that man or woman who stands at the doorway and says, "Stop. I want to see your receipt." Right? Your access to all those good things that you just spent hundreds of dollars on, sitting in your grocery cart that you need for the next month of quarantine, is this piece of paper. This receipt that says it's paid for. It's paid for. That's functionally how you're going to get to all that stuff you need in that cart. Without that piece of paper that says this is paid for, they're not going to let you out of that store. But then you just show them this paper and they say, oh, go ahead. No security comes. No lady tries to grab your cart and shake it and dump all the stuff on the floor. You just see that. That's and Go ahead. Go ahead. She doesn't ask you how kind you are to your neighbors, or how loving you are to your children, or whether you've been faithful at work, she just looks at that receipt and she says, go ahead, go ahead, right? This is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's your receipt. You go to God's presence. You show him the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, God, I am super afraid. I need help. God, I am super tented. I need help. God, I really blew it today with my temper, what I looked at. I need help. Show him the blood of Christ. That's your receipt. That's how you get in. So go to him with your fears, go to him with your struggles and your trials. Last one strengthen each other. Strengthen each other. I just want to make an appeal, just as you guys did this morning. Please continue, as you have been doing, to be about helping one another remember all that we have in Jesus. There's all kinds of other things that that God's going to call us to be doing materially and physically, I believe, over the next few months. But of all the things you can do for one another, please be about helping one another remember all that we have in Jesus Christ. Listen, God says, do not be afraid a lot. Because he knows there are going to be these seasons where we're going to need to hear it a lot. And for many of us, the longer this goes, the more we're going to need to, to hear, do not be afraid, not only from God through his word, but we're going to need to hear it from God through one another. See, your life is left on Earth because you have a job to do. Your job is to be knowing Jesus and showing Jesus to others. That's your job. That's why he left you on earth, to know Jesus and to show him to others. He has you here to care for others. He he has you here to be his hands, his feet, his ears, his mouth to one another. You've been called to this church family, not only to be served, but to serve, not only to receive encouragement, but to give encouragement. And, and, you know, no one knows what's going to happen. They could find a vaccine next week. But but already through what we've had to lay down in the last couple of weeks, the, the multiple effects of economic problems, the sense of isolation that will increase the temptation to withdraw on purpose, getting used to just being alone, the fears of debilitating illness for ourselves or loved ones or the reality of that, all these things, they're, they're not only Enemies clamoring for our attention, clamoring for our hearts. They are opportunities to step into one another's lives and help each other hold on to Jesus. It is for such a time as this that we're called. And you may not be fearful this morning because you feel full of faith in God's powers, or things might be relatively low-key for you circumstantially. Praise God for that. But someone here in this virtual room May just need you to listen to their fear, to take real time, to stop and just hear them. And, and that, by the way, is I have to coach myself. We have to coach each other. That's that's really such an important first job is to stop and just hear, to draw out and, and to listen. And then to enter into that fear that they're experiencing by remembering that we are vulnerable to fears by remembering what it's like when we're not afraid, remembering what it's like to be afraid so that then we can, we can gently help them remember who Jesus is. So we listen, we try to enter in, remembering how we're often afraid and what that's like. And then we gently try to help them remember who Jesus is. He is faithful. He is loving. He is sympathetic. He's going to keep coming through for us. And and as I said in my last, in my email this week, I I just have this fear I need help from God with this, that that there's a real possibility that for many of us, social (laughs) isolation, social isolation, um, that was for you, Jim Hoke, that for many of us, social isolation, that it, it not lead, To spiritual isolation. That's a big burden for me, I'm sure for many of you, that social isolation not lead to spiritual isolation from one another. So my appeal is please don't let that happen. In this season, please think about how to be more deliberate and intentional than you are used to being. I really think that we're going to need to be more deliberate and more intentional than we're used to being. Each day, I just want to encourage you, think of who you can call, who you can text, who you can FaceTime, who you can Zoom, who you can Slack with, who you can Google Hangout with, who you can meet in the park and stay six feet apart. That can be like a little rhyme. Meet in the park and stay six feet apart. That was for free. But whatever you need to do, please be proactive about checking in on one another. Please be proactive and not just the same people, but look for a few people that that you you aren't sure are being checked in on. Maybe maybe once a week, make it your goal. I'm going to look for somebody and we'll have Pam send out our 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 church uh, contact list uh, today or tomorrow. I'm going to look for somebody who who won't who who won't necessarily be my usual go to for a check in. And I'm just going to see how they're doing. Ask them, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Is there any way I can serve you? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Any way I can serve you? Just ask those questions. And and let me also make an appeal. If you've had meetings going for Bible studies or care groups, or been going to Tuesday prayer or the like, please keep seeking to do that. If it, if it all means you can to stay in touch by having those meetings virtually. Jay, Jonathan, thank you so much for hosting Sam Society this week virtually or by finding alternative ways to keep in regular contact. A couple of things um, about that. So like I said, I'm gonna ask Pam if she'd send out the directory digitally this week so you can contact people and make sure that you've got names of those who you may wanna contact but you're not used to. Uh, Number two, we'll send out a small cheat sheet of sorts on social media tools. Most of you guys are way more well-versed on this social media stuff than I am. But of course, the the older you get, um the the more you kind of feel lost in this stuff i think so josh trout's been helping us with a list of 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 that stuff um for those of you who are working at home or are homebound right now and can do it i'm going to be starting a weekly devotional coffee on wednesdays at noon it's just going to be a time for you to grab your lunch grab a cup of coffee I'll, i'll open a room at noon and you can we'll send out all the information you can just join in I'll I'll be using the questions from the sermons that I send out for the Sunday recap, and we'll just go through a few questions. We'll ask each other if anyone has anything to confess, pray, needs. We'll close in prayer. We won't make it complicated. Um, If we don't use the recap questions, we'll be going to uh, J.I. Packers, Knowing God. But but we'd just love to see you each week to do that. Um, And finally, I want to come back to what I brought up last week. Lord willing, I will be able to send out some of these training things. I've been talking to the church a long time about discipleship friendships and just meeting in groups of one or two <laughs> meeting in groups of two or three, um, together, uh, once a week, just for an hour to go through, uh, a, a passage of scripture with a question, which I can provide for you, uh, to, to ask people for confession, praise and prayer. Um, and then just to pray just three simple things. Truth in God's Word, your life struggles, prayers, needs, and pray. Truth, life, prayer. Just three simple things. This week, I'm going to send out a handout on on how to make that happen in hopefully an easy way. And and I want to help you facilitate getting in touch with people to form up into these groups. Um, Hopefully, we'll be able to talk more about that soon. But again, just truth, life, prayer. that That's all you need to make fellowship happen with one another. Share God's truth. Share your life, prayers, needs, confessions and then just pray for each other. Doesn't have to be complicated. It it just has to be done. Um, So let me see if we are ready to close.